Well, good evening to you all. This evening, our topic has to do with the development and practice of head covering styles. I hope you can appreciate that I've been trying to, to make some connections of our practices to principles, principles in Scripture. And so as we find principles in Scripture and we try to apply them, they may be applied differently, and you're full well aware of this, that churches apply them differently, cultures apply them differently. But what we're looking at is some uh, ways that have developed among conservative Anabaptists uh, in which uh, we practice the Scripture in, in certain ways. And so last evening we were talking about simplicity, we were talking about modesty. Modesty is simplicity and modesty is decency as it applied to uh, men's dress and women's dress, particularly the plain coat and the cape dress. This evening we're talking about the development and practice of head covering styles. And I'd like for you to open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 11. I will do some study here in the scripture to begin with. Thank you for that. I want to read verses 13 to 15. Judge in yourselves, is it comely that a woman pray unto God uncovered? Doth not even nature itself teach you that if a man have long hair, it is a shame unto him? But if a woman have long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given her for a covering. And so in writing here to the Corinthian people, Paul asks a couple of questions. One thing is, is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? I want you to think about that word proper. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? And the second question, does not nature itself teach you? And so think about those two words. Is it proper? Does not nature itself teach you? Uh, in this case, does not nature itself teach you that if a man have long hair, it is a shame unto him? And it seems to me that by various means, God has impressed a measure of his will and ways on mankind so that even in our fallen state and depraved nature, we know certain things and we manifest certain things uh, about varying amounts of God's law and order. Uh, it, it is somehow or another impressed upon us, and even though we're depraved, we have a depraved nature uh, by birth, there's something about what is proper and what nature teaches us that in varying degrees, the varying people is impressed upon us. So when Paul asks, is it proper? And he asks, does not nature teach you? He is appealing to an imprint of divine knowledge that is upon us, that, that we have as human beings, that somehow or another a certain amount of divine knowledge is imprinted upon us that we have a certain sense of what is proper and what nature uh, teaches us. And even uh, in pagan society, a certain amount of this in, is, is evident. And so here to these Corinthians people, 
Uh, Paul appeals to this. It had to do with the propriety of women covering their heads and of, of, uh, of their hair length. And there was just something that seems proper about this. And there's something that nature impresses upon people about this. Now let's go to Romans chapter 1, and we see that um, we can suppress the truth that is impressed upon us or that we have by revelation. I'd like to read verses 18 and 21. The wrath of God, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. And there when it talks about holding the truth in unrighteousness, has to do with, with suppressing the truth. So the wrath of God is upon people because... Uh, Sometimes we know things, and we know things almost instinctively, something that seems proper or something that seems right by nature or even by revelation, and we have this tendency as depraved human beings to suppress that. And so it talks about how that's done in verse 21, because that when they knew God, they glorified Him not as God, neither were thankful but became in their vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. And so it's a matter of suppressing the truth, diminishing the cast of God's reflection on individuals and on society. Now, in that context, we read that, um, I believe I want verses 26, starting in the middle of verse 26 to the middle of verse 27, that women did change, even their women did change the natural use under that which is against nature. Again, we see that word nature. There's something that, that seems natural, that seems right. And here, of course, it's talking about sexuality. And it's saying there's something right and by nature seems right about human sexuality between man and woman. And here it says that that nature, what seems right, what God has impressed upon us uh, is being violated by women that uh, in the time of Paul. For even their women, uh, or maybe it was prior to his time, did change the natural use unto that which is against nature. And likewise, also the man, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one toward another, Receiving unto themselves in themselves the recompense of their error. And as I see it, that is the story of hair length and head covering in human history. There's something that has seemed right. There's something that has seemed proper. There's something that seemed natural in terms of how a woman should wear her hair and of how a man should wear his hair. And even in a woman covering her head, there is something in nature or something of the divine imprint on human beings uh, in much of history among many peoples that has seemed right. And, uh, but that has been suppressed. And so we have in verse 22, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. And then it goes on and it talks about how that 
uh, you know, they abandoned themselves, they abandoned the natural order, they have, uh, God just gave them over to their own desires and to their own wisdom, and things have just gone haywire, uh, and, and people then suffer the consequence of that. Now, the, suing the ensuing practice of women cutting their hair and of burying their heads has become so established a norm uh, in our society today that even Christians adopt that without hesitation. And they think, and they just brush off the scriptural exposition as a cultural oddity rather than a universal practice and principle that is proper and natural. Uh, and what I'm saying is that actually the present practice in the Western world of cut hair and bared heads for women is something that is an abnormality in relation to much of history. And so today, most American women think it's just natural, it's proper for women to cut their hair and not to wear a head covering. And, and, uh, and no, that's, that's not right. They have abandoned what was natural and proper for most of history. That seemed odd. That seemed wrong. That nature itself and what was proper seemed uh, for, for women to wear their hair long. In general, uh, the story of the development and practice of the traditional head covering style uh, here among North American Mennonites and European Mennonites of earlier time, of Anabaptist women, was that uh, somewhat like the, the plain coat and the cape dress. It was a matter of following the basic conventions of society. Uh, and I would say that with some qualification, but I'll get into that later. One of the conventions regarding women's covering their head was the trend in the 1800s uh, toward women uncovering their head going bareheaded. And so some Mennonite women, apparently, following that trend, wore coverings only when going to church. According to Melvin Gingrich in a book I referred to yesterday uh, in Mennonite attire through four centuries, some churches in the Franconia Conference had rows of boxes on the, uh, had shelves with rows, rows of boxes there, and so the ladies could keep their head coverings in those boxes, and when, she, when they came to church, they'd get their box down, take out their head covering, put it on, and then put it back in the box because it was only worn when they went to church, not when they were at home. He also mentions a church in Sugar Creek uh, in Wayland, Iowa, Sugar Creek Mennonite Church, where women followed a similar practice. And when I gave this this uh, talk in another connotation, then a local historian in Virginia told me that although he doesn't have any written documentation of the fact that the mother-in-law of the founder of Christian Light Publications, uh, a man who used to be my pastor uh, when I was growing up, that this uh, man's mother-in-law remembered at the Pike Church there at the edge of Harrisonburg that uh, there were boxes, covering boxes at that church as well. And so uh, there was a time there in the 1800s where Mennonite women did not wear uh, head coverings all the time. They just wore them at church, at least in some contexts. Now, if you are familiar with the church hymnal as a songbook, the hymn editor of the church hymnal is a man by the name of S.F. Kaufman, Samuel Fred Kaufman. 
And Samuel Kaufman lived in Vineland, Ontario, but his father was John S. Kaufman from Rockingham County, Virginia, uh, west of Harrisonburg. And John Kaufman uh, was born before the time of the Civil War, but he's credited as being the one who really introduced and got off the ground this thing of having revival meetings among Mennonite churches, early Mennonite evangelist. And at some point in his life, he moved to Elkhart, Indiana, and he worked for John Funk. And I think I'll make mention of John Funk uh, later on. Uh, but he worked for John Funk, and John Funk had this business called the Mennonite Publishing Company. And that's to be distinguished from what was the Mennonite Publishing House. But the Mennonite Publishing Company was in Elkhart. It was a private business. And he published a magazine called the Herald of Truth in both English and in German. And so it was kind of, uh, you know, a, a church newspaper among the people. So I'm talking about John Kaufman and his son Samuel Kaufman, who was the hymn editor of the Christian of, of the Mennonite hymnal. And maybe that's more history than, than you wanted to know. But John Kaufman says that when his family moved to Indiana, uh, or this Samuel Kaufman says, uh, S.F. John's uh, son, said that when his family moved from Virginia to Indiana in 1889, uh, that his mother only wore her cap, her covering, to church, as was the practice in that community at that time, there in, in the Goshen, Indiana um, area. And apparently, many Mennonite women, women and, and men saw more that the wearing of the cap was just an established practice. It was a cultural practice. They didn't understand anything, or at least amount to anything, about the scriptural basis for it. It was a practice that was just passed on, and so it didn't have, it didn't have meaning like it has uh, to us today. They didn't see it as a biblical teaching. J.S. Hartzler was an Indiana school teacher born in 1857, and he died in 1953, so he lived to a ripe old age. But he came from the Amish Mennonites, uh, probably in, in the Midwest, and he was uh, an ordained Amish Mennonite minister in 1881, and he said that at the time of his ordination, he did not know of any scripture for the cap, for the head covering. And so what we're saying is that there was a practice of the head covering among women, but there was a lack of understanding. It was just more of a cultural practice than it was an understanding of the biblical basis for it. And so... This John Kaufman, SF's father, uh, who was the evangelist, he began to give biblical teaching for the basis of the covering, uh, presumably as he traveled around to churches in his evangelistic work. And so his son, SF, explained in 1954, and I'm going to quote here, he said, These times were among the first when many of our people ever heard 1 Corinthians 11 expounded as signifying the purpose of the cap. It was a wonderful revelation throughout the whole church. From 1885 on through the early part of the 1890s, this fresh appreciation of the subject was presented and accepted. Young men heard the exposition and accepted it, uh, accepted and taught it. Now, before going further into development and the practice of covering styles, why don't we go back again to 1 Corinthians 11, and I'd like to notice a few things 
uh, there having to do with, with the biblical basis of it. I've already pointed out that long hair and covered heads is something that is right by nature, is right, it is proper that more women throughout history than not, uh, perhaps, had that sense of its propriety, that what we're used to here in North America and in Europe at this point is abnormal for the normal practice uh, throughout history of, of, many, of many people. Okay, so looking back here at, at uh, 1 Corinthians 11, we understand that the underlying principle to this matter of women um, wearing, uh, covering their heads and wearing long hair and men with uncovered heads and having short hair, the underlying principle of that has to be uh, the matter of divine authority. Verse 3, but I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. And so there is a, a divine order of authority, and I don't want to belabor that point, but this uh, order of authority um, is that uh, something that was established at creation. It was not something that came out of the fall. Uh, the, the, the order of, of uh, women's relationship to men was not a matter that that now because of the fall, there, there needs to be a, a headship of men over women. No, it was a creation principle. So it was established at creation. It's symbolized by women uh, by their long hair and covered heads and men with short hair and uncovered heads. And it's demonstrated in functional relationships between men and women of mutual love and submission. I'd like to camp on this just emphasize this, this bottom point. You know, a woman can have an ever so big uh, head covering and a man can make sure that he don't wear his hat or his cap or whatever, you know, the thing and has their hair properly cut and everything. But if you don't have functional relationships between men and women, you're missing the point. Uh, the point is not, yes, the, the cap or a head covering, the covered head and the length of hair and all is important. It's the way it symbolizes, but that's the symbol that's not the substance. The substance is how we actually relate to one another. Whether the, the husband is loving his wife, loving his daughters as he ought to, relating to them, and whether the wife is relating to the husband uh, as, as they ought to. And so, uh, there's a story of a lady in my growing up uh, home community where I grew up, and she was, uh, you know, known to be sort of an assertive lady, and she and her husband and another couple uh, had made a trip to Florida, and they got back to about within 30 miles of home, and don't you know they got pulled over by a traffic cop, and I guess her husband was dealing with the cop or whatever, and the officer of the law, and, and as the story goes, you know, she said, let me out of here, let me out of here, and she says, young um, now, how, how was it? Something about a whippersnapper. We've been all the way to Florida and back, and you young whippersnapper, you know, stopped us here, you know, 30 miles from home or whatever. And he says, lady, I am not a young whippersnapper. I'm an officer of the law. <laughs> and so 
That there is, it's the substance, the other is important, the symbolism is important, but the substance is, of, is the point. The bread and the, and the cup at communion is the symbol. The substance is what Christ has really done for us, and whether that's operative uh, in, in our lives. Now, the word the Bible uses to describe this human relationship structure is head, and it means to have authority over it, and it's actually something that's operational within the Godhead and between God and man and between man and woman, and women are not to be subservient. That is, expected to obey orders unquestionably, nor to be subordinate. They are not lower in rank or position or inferior and of lesser importance to men. They're, they're not just to be relegated to cooking, as important that is, or cooking food and caring for the babies and cleaning for the house while, while we men really do the important things. No, that's not what it's all about. That's not what it's all about. Women are created with intelligence and dignity and, and a significant role in molding and shaping our own thinking as, as men. Men, women are often degraded and demeaned even uh, among various world religions and even among professing Christians. And the Christian faith dignifies women, not because women demand it, but because Christ does. He requires it, that we treat women with dignity. And so if the love of Christ dwells within us, how can we do less than to dwell with our wife with understanding giving her the honor as, in some way, the weaker partner, yet being heir with us of the grace of life. Now, Paul makes two, two points that affirm the dignity of women. The first is, in verses 7, uh, the middle seven, verse 7 to verse 9, it says that women is uh, that... The man, he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For the man is not of the woman, but the woman of man. Neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. And so man is incomplete without woman. We know that from Genesis where, where God said it's not good for man to be alone. And so uh, woman completes man. Um, the late Philip Keller said that women are men and women, man and woman are like two pieces of a puzzle which fit together because they are not exactly alike or randomly different. Together they make a complete whole. The second thing about that this shows about the dignity of women and is in verses 11 to 12. Nevertheless, neither is the man without the woman, neither the woman without the man in the Lord. For as the woman is of the man, even so is the man also by the woman, but all things of God. Man cannot exist without women. And uh, even common observation uh, of adults tell us that the continuity of the human race is, is uh, dependent on a mutuality and interdependence between the sexes. Now, when I conduct premarital counseling, I try to explain headship. I explain headship in terms of management. We as husbands are to see that certain decisions 
uh, are to be made, but we're not to marginalize our wives in the process and fail to involve them in decision-making process. And while God has given men specific roles in the church, the New Testament pictures the sisters as interested and involved in church life as well, and consequently, headship within the church or within church life should manage to include and involve the sisters appropriately. And so acceptance of this order is what is shown then by covering of the head and long hair or uncovering the head and short hair in the case of, of men. Now I want to go back and look at the practice again. So we've looked a little more here at the principle and I've kind of emphasized this. I was involved with a, with a situation where there was a difficulty between uh, the husband and the wife and it, I came to see that, that a wife has no greater commandment to submit. Well, yes, wives are to submit, but a wife has no greater commandment to submit than what the husband does to love. In fact, the husband ought to be taking the initiative. And so, you know, to a pound and pound a woman to submit, but not pound and pound for the man to be loving, we're off balance. We're not giving, we're, we're not, uh, it's easy for us to, to, to pound on that thing of, of women submitting, but we need to uh, make sure that the men are loving. And, uh, and so I, I feel strongly about that, about that aspect of, uh, of relationship. So we want to go on now back to this matter of the practice of the head covering and how it, it came to be. But uh, first, let's talk a little bit about the practice of men covering their heads. And I jotted a few things here in my notes, and so it's going to be a little more hard for me to figure this thing out, what I was, what I was saying. But apparently, some groups have uh, practically made the hat uh, almost a religious symbol. I'm not quite sure why. Uh, I guess it's just a matter of, of tradition to, to wear the hat instead of just being or a cap, but in, in this case, the conservative groups of, of a hat being almost a religious symbol instead of, of simply a, a protective uh, thing of, of the, of the uh, protecting from weather. And uh, I think that sometimes a practice, I'll mention this tomorrow night, but I think sometimes a practice becomes kind of ingrained and we, we can give it undue merit. Now, that happened, that happened uh, with the Pharisees. And remember what Jesus said, that you have, uh, you have made, in essence, you have made the commandments of men to be greater than the commandments of God. In fact, they violated the commandments of God. And so I think that can, that can happen, that perhaps it wasn't intended to be this way, but sometimes a hat has become a religious symbol in a way that it is used, can be used in a way that practically violates the commandment of God as it's laid out here in 1 Corinthians 11. But then there's another thing I want to say about men covering their head, and that is 
is not as a matter of religious symbol, but sometimes uh, just following a cultural practice, men can wear their caps. I don't know whether you all allow caps in your fellowship or you're strictly hats, and it doesn't make that much difference. And so maybe you don't have this problem, but of, of men wearing their caps uh, indoors, just like, uh, you know, you go to a restaurant and you're sitting there with your cap on and, and, and eating, or, you know, if you could pray and not take off your cap. And, and so it raises the question, you know, well, what is the relationship of, of a cap or a hat as a protective matter and as a religious symbol? So if you have on something on your head, men, we men, as a protective device, uh, what is a protective device? Do we need to take it off to pray? So, so kind of what is the interface of that? What is the relationship? Again, among uh, even outside of, Christ, of Mennonite or Anabaptist circles, there is a, it seems something ingrained in people that in men who, whose wives do not even cover their head in church, but yet if there's going to be a prayer at a farm meeting or something like that, that the men generally remove their caps, even though they themselves are not practicing 1 Corinthians 11 in their own faith. Now, they're not practicing that their wives have long hair and, uh, and cover their heads, but yet the men will take their caps off to pray. Well, we have a customer, an, an elderly man who comes uh, and... Um, my, my work at this stage in life is as a pecan grower. And we also do marketing. And, and, uh, and so we have a customer who comes, and when he sees my wife, he kind of doffs his cap a little bit, out of respect. She's not God. She's, she's, she's really good, but, but she's not divine. But he shows that respect of just kind of, you know, kind of lifting up his, his hat, uh, cap, just a, a little bit. So I'm saying is, that sometimes we can use a protective head covering and it develops a undue religious significance, and sometimes we use our protective head covering insensitively to, the, to what Scripture says. And if we're going to be uh, indoors eating or praying or whatever, I think it's best for us to remove our head covering. I mean, it's not raining in there. The sun is, the lights are probably not that bright that we need to shade our eyes or whatever. And so I, I think that it is proper to do that. Uh, if you disagree with me, talk to your ministers. <laughs> okay. In 2007, a regular columnist for The World magazine, which is an evangelical uh, news magazine. Some of you may be familiar with it, but a regular columnist for that magazine wrote uh, a column, and the column was under this heading. This was the heading of the column, A Symbol of Glory, One Woman Says Yes to God. And this is what she wrote. I have taken to wearing a head covering during worship. I expect one in a thousand readers follows this practice, so you might all be annoyed with me. If this were the 1950s, you would simply say, so what? Now, why does she say that? Because in the 1950s, women were more likely to wear a hat when they went to church. 
Now, we may not be big on women wearing hats to go to church, but it was their way of doing head covering. And it was kind of like, uh, you know, some Mennonite women who had their coverings at, at the church and just wore them when they came to church. Well, they just wore their hats when they came to church. But at least in the 1950s, uh, we can appreciate that impulse that they were trying to, to cover their heads when they came to church. Now, this writer, writer goes on explaining her personal revival that uh, led her to trying to discern what is pleasing to God. And I think maybe she had the verse there, Ephesians 5, 10, that Brother Norman uh, read yesterday morning and I called attention to. And then how she launched out and she put on a symbol of glory on her head at church because she thinks 1 Corinthians 11 tells her to. And so, interestingly, she went and bought this head covering at a Catholic shop. And the lady ringing up the sale asked her if she was going to Rome. Why did she ask her that? Well, because by now, not only the Protestants, but even most Catholics have discontinued covering their heads in church. And so for Catholics, apparently it's just for going to Rome. Like when President Carter went to Rome and his wife, Rosalind, and she just died recently at a ripe old age, but they were Baptists and they, you know, maybe in the 50s she wore a hat to church, but by now she probably was not wearing any head covering. But when she went to Rome and they had an audience with the Pope, she covered her head. She would cover it to the Pope, but she didn't cover it to God, probably, in, in her own, uh, but at least she was culturally respective. Now, although documentation is somewhat thin since, uh, again, since we don't have photographic evidence for the last 175 years, uh, except for the last 175 years in time, there's evidence to include that many women wore head coverings uh, throughout history, not just Anabaptist women, but women, in general, wore head coverings throughout history. And this uh, includes drawings and paintings, <clears throat> as well as material we find in Isaiah. And I'd, I'd like for you to turn to Isaiah chapter 47. I'm going to read two and a half verses there. Isaiah 47, verses 1 to the middle of verse 3. So this is giving us evidence of something in Isaiah's time about women and their heads. Come down and sit in the dust, O virgin daughter of Babylon. This is not talking about Israel. It's talking about Babylon. Okay? Set in the dust, O virgin daughter of Babylon, set on the ground, there is no throne, O daughter of the Chaldeans, for thou shalt no more be called tender and delicate. Take the millstones and grind meal, uncover thy locks, make bare the leg, uncover the thigh, pass over the rivers, thy nakedness shall be uncovered, yea, thy shame shall be seen. Therein uh, verse 2, where it says, uncover thy locks, that literally says, uncover, where it says, uh, uncover thy locks, yes, the literal is, remove your veil. Now, there's some question of whether that is the, a head veil or a 
face veil, uh, but that is associated, uncovering the veil, taking off the veil is associated with nakedness. And this is of Babylonian women, not women who, who were Israelites who were supposed to know God. Regarding uh, early church practice of, of head coverings, Corey Anderson writes that the only conclusion on style from the early church was that there was no intrinsically biblical style or design. So he's saying that from what, what can be found, according to his research, there was no exact thing. This is what the Bible teaches exactly how the style of head covering should be. Head covering styles vary geographically. It seems that in general, in sub-Sahara Africa, um, below the Sahara Desert, that it, they used a wrapped style the African head wrap. North Africa, the Middle East, and the Indian subcontinent used a veiled style. Much of Europe used a cap style, and Asia was uh, kind of a mixed bag. Now, not so long ago, I read a short article about two churches situated across the street from one another in South Carolina, um, the state where I live, and they had a joint... Uh, baptismal service at the beach and the focus on the account was not only that one church was a black church and the other church was a white church but that partway through the baptism uh, what was happening was that they alternated uh, between pastors so here you had the white pastor and the white congregation and the black pastor and the black congregation and so one of this white pastor's applicants would go out to him and he would baptize and then one of the black pastor's Applicants would go out to him, and he would baptize. And partway through, one of the white applicants for baptism went over here to the black pastor and was baptized by the black pastor. And one person from the black church then went to the white pastor, and they crisscrossed. Uh, and that was a beautiful thing in its, in its setting. Now, that's not the way we do baptism, but it was a beautiful thing. It was a breaking down of the racial barrier uh, they're happening at the baptismal service. And uh, while that's interesting and in its way beautiful, uh, what is significant for our purposes is what the writer said about how those who were to be baptized were dressed. And it said that the white Baptists, including the pastor, came dressed in shorts, T-shirts, and flip-flops. And those from the African Methodist Episcopal Church were dressed in thin white cotton robes, and the women wore a white head wrap. And then the author continued, that is their tradition. And where did the tradition come from? Does not nature itself teach you? Is it not proper? There was something that seemed proper and right about that. And the style quite possibly came from Africa. Now, since Anabaptism originated in Western Europe, Naturally, Anabaptist women did not wear head wraps or veils, but they wore cap coverings, uh, as did non-Anabaptist women as well. My grandparents, um, maybe back in the 60s or whatever, went to Europe, and uh, they were in Amsterdam, and they bought some tapestries. And uh, after my grandfather died, and later on my grandmother had uh, some sales to display, 
first with some things, and I bid against my, one of my cousins, and I bought one of those tapestries, and we have it hanging in our living room, and it's a, it's a Dutch scene. Uh, and so there's these women, older women, sitting in a room, uh, and it's one of those Dutch doors that the top door is open, and you can see out, and you see the water, and they're sitting in this room sewing, and they have head coverings on. It was something they'd bought in Amsterdam. It was not, it was not a, a Mennonite scene. It was just a, a Dutch, uh, what do you say, a, a Dutch uh, folk scene. Depictions and paintings of Dutch Mennonite women in worship and domestic settings show them in both black and white caps. And then these Dutch or Dutch and Flemish uh, Frisians, these, these people moved west to Prussia, which would be like eastern Germany, I guess, or was, and, uh, or Poland. And so they moved there. And then from there, uh, the conservative one of, ones of them moved to Ukraine. And from Ukraine, then the conservative ones of those uh, moved to Manitoba, and then from there they moved to, to Mexico and Belize, and uh, those women, some of those women uh, still wear head coverings. Now, Mennonites weren't the only Europeans coming to North America, of course, and so we don't need to look any further than, the, than a portrait of the first, first family to see somebody with a head covering, Martha Washington. Look at the pictures of Martha Washington, and she has a head covering, Remember what I said about the, uh, the coat, how the George Washington, we saw a painting of him in, in a standing collar coat, but it was, you know, he had a, a fluffy cravat on, it was a little stylish, and so uh, you look at Martha Washington or Abigail Adams, and they have head coverings. Well, no, they're not as plain as traditional Anabaptist head coverings, but they had their heads covered. They, they had head coverings on. It wasn't that they was going out to work in the garden. They were setting for, a, for portraits, and, and so that was their uh, traditional way of, of dressing. For many years, the church did not regulate the exact style of cap covering that was acceptable, but nevertheless, regional and denominational similarities became evident. And uh, they still are. Sometimes you can identify, oh, you belong to this fellowship, you belong to there, just because of the style, that, that the, the nature that the head covering uh, takes. At any rate, um, then things did, uh, the church did become more intentional. And in 1844, 1884, the Virginia Conference said that young women should make their caps plain with narrow strings. In 1917, the Franconian Conference said that the cap strings are not to be used for ornament, but for tying the devotional covering. And Lancaster Conference ruled in 1937 that round coverings were not permitted. And in 1943, that the covering is to be of a square pattern, including ties. Now, again, referring to the book that Melvin Gingrich wrote about Mennonite attire through four centuries, that was published in 1970, and so when he says current practice, it's something that was probably in the 60s. And so he says that current practice, uh, conservative or plain Mennonite women evidently have always worn some type of a cap, although its appearance has changed considerably through the years. It is now generally a small cap 
made of organdy, rayon, nylon, or net, and covers the back of the head. And I wonder if most of that considerable change didn't occur within a few decades that, that preceded uh, the 1970. And at the time of his writing, he said that within Lancaster Conference area are as many as 17 distinct styles are worn, and within this range, there are similar, smaller variations, so that the total number of styles handled by the Plains, Plain Clothes Department of Hager and Brothers Store in Lancaster reaches approximately 100. Well, I'm assuming that both the store and many of those styles are no longer in business. Uh, that a lot of, uh, because Lancaster Conference uh, basically mostly abandoned that, and some of those little small uh, styles that you saw years ago are probably out of existence. Another development that has been, uh, has been a transition from the cap style covering to a veil style covering. Uh, among Swiss uh, and South German Mennonites, uh, that change, among us, that change has has seemed to come uh, about as a change of application for some mission settings or from some mission settings. I'm inclined to believe that the former Northern Light Gospel Mission at Red Lake, Ontario, it's where it was headquartered, uh, which became active in the 1950s, was the first conservative group of our segment of the Mennonite church to use a veil rather than a cap-style application. Uh, Ubichis began work in present-day Belize in 1962, and uh, early Amish Mennonite aid workers used a mixture of hanging veils and caps, but the hanging veils came to dominate, according to Corey Anderson. In time, veil-type head coverings became well-established in El Salvador and in Costa Rica. 1964, um, the conservative Mennonite missionaries arrived in Chimatenango, uh, Guatemala, and they founded a, a new mission with the Conservative Mennonite Fellowship. And now that mission is aligned with the Nationwide Fellowship of Churches. I was a VSer with that mission in 1973 and 1974, and the head covering application at that time was a black scarf tied in the back, leaving a hanging point in the back. At present, the veil remains black, but the a pattern has changed a bit. A VS friend of mine uh, who was from Wisconsin and is now serving in Columbia, South America, suggests that there was a connection between the practice in Red Lake and the practice in Chimatenango because one of those missionaries uh, with that group in, in Guatemala was from Wisconsin and he had knowledge of, of the uh, practice in Red Lake. In fact, he was a a friend, perhaps, of, of uh, Norman Schantz, and Irwin Schantz, uh, who was uh, director there. And uh, being acquainted with that work in, in Red Lake, he thought something like that would be more practical uh, in a Guatemalan setting. By the time I arrived in Guatemala, both Mennonite Air Mission had started, as well as a group sponsored by the Eastern Pennsylvania Church. And uh, one of those groups... The Mennonite Air Mission continued on with the practice that was started in, in the Chimatanango, 
and the Eastern group uh, used the cap style, and as far as I know, they still do. The Nationwide Fellowship mission started uh, in the Dominican Republic in 1980, began with a veil-style covering, as did Southeastern Conference work in Puerto Rico in 1981, and the Nationwide has work in Philippines, Mexico, and Colombia, South America, not elsewhere, that uses the veil-style covering. I wonder how much effect... Uh, the Charity Christian Fellowship had an associated movement. Uh, perhaps for some people, it was a stimulus toward uh, a veil instead of a capped covering, and perhaps for some, they reacted against that uh, in wanting to retain a cap style instead of, instead of a veil application. And at the same time, some churches, for various reasons, favored retaining a cap style only uh, for their practice. And apparently some people have a Sunday practice, but perhaps an official or an unofficial weekday practice that uh, on Sunday it's a cap style and then they cut some slack or, or members take some liberty or whatever it is for doing something else during the week. I don't think that's the best practice. I think the best practice is to come to a decision and, and, to, uh, and to observe that. There are strong feelings for, uh, well, let me back up. One of the issues that can evoke some strength of feeling about head coverings is the color. I'm of the impression that some missions favor black as a matter of practicality. Some churches and individuals favor white for various reasons. Um, the strong feelings for white that some from the Swiss-German side of the Anabaptist family have is matched from the Russian side of the Mennonite family against white. So uh, apparently you favor white. That's your practice. Some people feel strongly about that. I'm saying that apparently some of the Russian Mennonite side feel just as strongly about the preference for black. Now perhaps we can understand this cultural divide better if we think in terms of, of, uh, of some of the Russian Mennonites who, who practice head coverings being more of an old order mentality. In their economy, black is somber. It's a symbol of humility and seriousness of life. Ministers always wear black. Bridal couples are married in black. Consequently, someone who is from that background said that, told me that white is almost an abomination. <laughs> so it just sends the wrong message to them. And so we are culturally conditioned uh, to what white or what black means. Well, for whatever it's worth, in our church, in our conference, we changed some years ago, you can wear white or black. And so there are both... Uh, both colors of head coverings, of uh, veiled head coverings, are accepted. In conclusion, I want to highlight two matters. First, I think that we failed some by accepting some sort of article or clothing called a covering to fulfill the biblical symbolism of women's acceptance of the divine order of headship. 
So using Melvin Gingrich's terminology, does a small cap made of burgundy, rayon, nylon, or net that covers the back of the head, or I might say hangs off the back of the head, or a small veil that hangs off or is attached to the back of the head, or is perched atop of the head, accomplish what Scripture is really talking about? What does the Bible say? Let me go back to 1 Corinthians. For every man who prays, praying, or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonors his head. Every woman that prays or prophesies with her head uncovered. It doesn't say without a covering. It says with her head uncovered, dishonors her head. For that is even all as one as she were shaven. For if the woman is not covered, it doesn't say does not have a covering, let her also be shorn. But if a woman... It be a shame for a woman to be shorn or shaven. Let her be covered. For a man indeed ought not to cover his head. For as much as he is the image and glory of God. But the woman is the glory of man. And so to me the symbolism here is not a device or a something that sets or is attached or falling off or whatever the head called a covering. It is a covered head. Now. Whether it's styled as a cap or whether it's styled as a cloth or whether it's styled as a wrap or whatever, now while a clear focus of how the headship order is to be symbolized may not solve all the issues of exactly how large the head covering should be, how much of the head should be covered, at least I think Scripture points us in the right direction. Just some little symbolic scrap of cloth or piece of... Uh, of uh, of cloth or whatever, whether it's a cap or 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 whatever, it's not really dealing with the dealing with the issue of how this is to be symbolized. Second, it's my opinion that the continuance of head covering has more to do with church and personal conviction and commitment, and with church administration than with the basic style of head covering. Uh, some folks are concerned that. That the uh, <clears throat> that the uh, unfitted that the veil type covering is just a step to no covering, and you should know living here in Lancaster County if you're uh, of not too young that Lancaster Conference went from a fitted cap covering to no covering without a veil in between. That Virginia Conference did the same. Most Mennonites did that. They went from the fitted covering or the chapel cap, of some fitted type covering, to no covering without going with, with a veil. The nearest group that went through that intermediate stage is, the, in my thinking, the conservative. What was the conservative conference? A lot of them, I think, did wear a veil. But when people who wear veiled coverings abbreviate them and eventually discard them, they're following the same route as the people who wore capped coverings and did the same thing. The problem, in my thinking, is not inherent in either the cap or the veil. The problem is fundamentally in the heart of the wearer and to a significant measure in the soundness of church administration. 
And so the Bible is, is clear about the principle. The practice can vary. But if you haven't caught on yet, I don't think a symbolic token fulfills what the Bible is talking about. That it needs to be somewhat significant in terms of, of size. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for um, your genius, your, your wisdom in creating us male and female. And for uh, the complementary beauty and blessing that is. Uh, and we thank you that you've made arrangement for us that we can have order in our relationships. We pray, Father, that uh, as we carry out your will in symbolizing that order, that we would symbolize it appropriately and conscientiously. And that we would not be satisfied with just symbolizing it, but it would really be something fruitful in our lives in the way we, we relate to one another. Especially we men to our wives, that we would love them and uh, dignify them for who they really are. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.